0: Okay. Tell me if you can hear me, and if not, raise a hand or something, and I will speak up. George Steiner may have said the last word on translation. George tends to say the last word about everything. When a translator looks behind him, he writes, what he sees is a eunuch's shadow. I'm not sure of the physiology here, but I certainly know the feeling. Many people from the translation police on down like to make translators fair game. We seem so pale, so bloodless to some, such hopeless leeches to others, such impostors to many more, nameless writers who sign our work with the flourish of a famous name, Boccaccio, Horace, Sappho. We're particularly despised, it seems, if our work is not translation but retranslation, and retranslation of some masterpiece at that. Yet another poost, the critics ask, another Dante, another Iliad. Small wonder if many of us are scolded for perfecting or wallowing in what Freud would call the narcissism of small differences. And so this business of translation is all unnecessary, or so the story goes. It's a waste of time and breath. Really, can't we muster enough Italian to get some taste of Leopardi in his own native language? Or enough French to get some taste of Baudelaire? Yes, perhaps some can, of course. Though if I had all the French in the world, and I certainly do not, I'd hate to be deprived of the English tradition of Baudelaire, from Poe to Robert Lowell to Richard Howard to God knows who's coming next. But French is one thing. How many of us can ever muster the Russian for Dostoevsky or the modern Greek for Cavafy, or the modern Hebrew for Agnon, or the Japanese for Mishima? or since some claim that the only good language is a dead language, the Latin for Ovid, the ancient Greek for Euripides, the classical Chinese for Li Po, let alone the Sanskrit for the great things in that culture, and so on and so on. Without translation, we'd be at a loss in the way that undermines a reader and a writer most. Worse than provincial, we'd be practically illiterate. Translation is often our passport to an intriguing present or a distant but compelling past, our commuters ticket to exotic tongues, as well as an education by contrast and by kinship in the tongue we speak ourselves. But here at a pen evening, I must be preaching to the converted after all. And if, as Bill Arrowsmith claimed, translation is the foreign policy of literature, tonight we have a positive united nations of the craft. No headsets necessary, though. No static either, I wager. No broken and breathy simultaneous translations. But there should be a freshness, even so, of another better kind. An immediacy, a spontaneity, and a little danger, too. For tonight we have not finished public work, but work in progress, <coughs> fresh from the notepad or the laser jet. And since the work is progress, in progress is translation, things are likely to get a little dramatic, for at least three reasons. We should be hearing a dialogue between the translators and yourselves, the audience, a back and forth in which the untested can be tested, new work can be revealed in its flaws as well as its strengths, especially if there are sleepers in the crowd, and soon enough, with any luck, the work can be revised. Then there's the dialogue between the translator and the original author. For each of our translators, instead of representing the author stiffly, diplomatically, and personally, will be trying, I should think, to impersonate that great original convincingly with heart and voice and high voltage. And so the evening should be dramatic too in its aura of expectancy, confronting the unknown. And this is something all some work in progress, say a dozen or 15 minutes at length, except for Ritva Pum, who who has translations from Estonian on the one hand and Finnish on the other, and then we'll turn the evening over to you for a while for whatever questions you'd like to ask of us. I'll begin with Peter Glassgold. His own published books include Living Space, Poems of the Dutch Fiftiers, Quat, a little old anthology of American modernist poetry. A translation from the Flemish of Stijn Stroevel's novel *The Flaxfield*, and forthcoming, the poems from Boethius on the Consolation of Philosophy, translated out of the original Latin into diverse historical Englishings, diligently collaged. That's all one title. How wonderful what it is! He is an active member of the Translation Committee of Penn and has served it and served it as, chair, uh, as its chair from 1981 to 1991. Peter.
1: Can, uh, can you hear me just properly? Okay. Uh, Boethius was a minister of Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic king of Italy after the so-called fall of Rome. Theodoric, thinking that Boethius had betrayed him in some way to the emperor in, uh, in uh, Constantinople, had him exiled, imprisoned, and in the end, garroted and bludgeoned to death. Uh, the year was 524. While in chains in his cell, Boethius somehow managed to compose his On The Consolation of Philosophy. It is an extended dialogue between himself and the goddess philosophy concerning human fate and fortune, written in alternate passages of of poetry and prose. Boethius has been accounted as either the last prominent classical Latin poet or the first medieval one. As a poet, he is mediocre to good. His significance lies in his extraordinary moral courage and in the fact that his last work was one of the few books to carry on Neoplatonic philosophical discourse into the Renaissance. But he gained in reputation by way of translation, in English especially. Among his better-known translators were Alfred the Great, Chaucer, and Queen Elizabeth I. You might say the strength of Boethius in English is in the genius of the English language itself. I wanted to make versions of Boethius that would capture the historical or diachronic linguistic resonances I hear in his poems, which have been translated, however poorly at times, at every stratum of English. Hence, these historical collages, as I call them, the result, if you like, of pulling Boethius' Latin through a kind of electrolytic linguistic soup, a mix of varieties of old, middle, renaissance, and modern English. (coughs) The published book, due out next fall from Sun and Moon Press, will have a glossary of 1,500 entries. This evening, I will read brief selections from book one. It helps to follow along with the printed versions you all have. AD 524, a prison tower in Pavia in the north of Italy. Anicius Manlius Severinus Boethius, ex-consul, former minister and confidant of of Theodoric, the Ostrogothic King of Rome, sits in chains. A victim of court intrigue, he has been accused of treasonous correspondence with the Emperor Justin in Constantinople and and summarily exiled banished from home and family and even the solace of his library. Grieving and old before his time, Boethius now looks to the muses for comfort. (laughs) What (laughs) each (laughs) William (laughs) you do the song is in flourishing study. So la, e weeping am compelled to begin. Me the muses rent Dictate I must write, and elegies, with very tears, my face bedew. No terror at the least; the Muses over Kuman, that they ne be on fellow travellers following my way. The one-time glory of happy greeny youth, now relieves the fate of me oldeman, sorgful. For Elda is common unlooked for, hide by harm is, And Sar hath haughten his age to add withal. all. Hore heres, untimely are poured upon my head, and from a weakened course the loose skin quivers. Happy the death of men that in the sweetest years intrudes not, but cometh in sorrowingers often called. Ay Allah, with how death and air I wretches rise And cruel refrains from closing weeping eyes While fortune on trio favored me With vading goods Death's sad hour had a almost drained mina heved Now since fortune cloudy Hath changed her fickle face Pitiless life drags on Unkindly its delays Why me? So oft, my friends, did you boast a happy man? Cephal, nasistapa nevrafast. The goddess philosophy appears and drives away the muses, those stagey little whores. Their dulcet poison can only palliate the anguish of a man such as Boethius, nurtured on the ancient philosophers she laments his mind's distress. Ay Allah, how an overthrowing deepness, the drowned mind is dull and for by its own light tends to move into foreign darknesses. Oft swollen with worldly winders, grows immense from noyous cura. This man, once free under the open sky, wont to gone on airy pathos would scan the rays of the rose in a sonne, regard the cold moon's constellations, and what star else wandering recourses runs e flit through diverse spheres he held grasp of, the maestri nombre. Yea, eke the causes when a sounding gusts roil the surface of the sea, Welch gas turneth a faster worlder, or we the welkin in the western waves he falle rises in the ruddy east. What tempers springtime's lusty hours that earth be decked with rosy flowers? Who makes autumn in the fullness of the year fleet and in fertile with heavy grapes? These he used to probe and also hidden nature's sundry causes to explain. Now he lies of mind's light weakened and neck oppressed by over-heavy chains, his chair holding downcast for the weight compelled Ayala to scan the dreary earth. But time now for healing, she says, not complaint. Boethius, stupefied, can hardly recognize the goddess he had formerly known so well. She touches him and with a tuck of her dress wipes away his tears, clearing his blurry eyes for a moment of the cloud of mortal cares. Then with night, Toshaka, the darknesses were clear and Tumin Ayin Repera again here are air in Mayen. As when the heavens amass In a headlong nor'wester And the sky is thick With wet plungy cloudes The sun lies hid No stars yet moving In the firmament A night uvan on earth Is spread If Boreas loosed from his Thracian den doth strike And discovereth the closed Day Flashes out Phoebus vibrant with light, sudden radiances piercing a stonied iron. Then follow two poems which you do not have, where, in which Boethius uh, does complain mightily of his present condition, after which philosophy stays calm. I hadn't realized, she says, how remote is your exile, and just how far you have driven yourself from your true homeland. What is missing from Boethius's cell is not his books so much as the ideas that she philosophy had put in them. Boethius has accurately told the injustices done him and been modest about his own good accomplishments, but pain, anger, and sorrow so pull him apart that she will have to start his cure with mild applications. Stronger medicines come later. When in Phoebus rays, cancer's sweltery constellation seeds, whoso then gave us largely his sadus to furrows that refuse in him, fooled by Ceres' faith, let him go on to acorn trees for corn. Never in a purple glade would you look to gather violets when in the fierce north wind is the their cherkinge a shrink. Nay, seeketh thou not with grady hand the budding vines on length to strip if grapes you would enjoy. In autumn, rather, Bacchus his gifts bestows. A God seasons meta to her proper mestiers nor what courses he hath unwailed uh, suffers them for Tumela. Thus, what an overthrowing away for letteth certain ordinance it has no happy end. Let's start, she says, <coughs> with a few questions. Is the world run by chance or by reason? God rules his works by reason, Boethius answers. And yet, philosophy says, you believe the affairs of men are somehow excluded from divine rule. If God is the beginning of all things, what is their end? Boethius has forgotten, and forgotten too the nature of humankind and how the universe is governed. This is his sickness. He has lost sight of truth, his vision fogged by delusions. With black clouds hid the heavens can get adone no light. If the woad south wind wallowing the say medleth flood glass hooter air like unto clear days the water eft befouled with loosened mud blocks all sight. What se brook off dale meandering thro heia mountainous oft is stayed by a dam of stone, slaked off a tour. You too, if you truth aknowen with clara licht, on dem richt runa a-path a path a-dreif gladnessa, grure a-dreif, flame thou hope, ne be sarwe. The mind is clouded with snaffle-bound where these are reinen ina." End book one.
0: Many thanks, Peter. Do you all have seats? Because there are a few still here on this side. Fine. Alat Halman is a professor in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Literatures at New York University. His books in English include two collections of his own poems, many volumes featuring the work of prominent modern Turkish poets and short story writers, three volumes on the medieval Anatolian mystic poet Yunus Emre Suleiman the Magnificent Poet, Rumi and the Whirling Dervishes, Living Poets of Turkey, Modern Turkish Drama, Turkish legends and folk poems, contemporary Turkish literature. Among his books in Turkish are five collections of his own original poems, a massive volume of the poetry of ancient civilizations, Shakespeare's complete sonnets in verse translations, two anthologies of modern American poetry, a book of Eskimo poems, and a volume of ancient Egyptian poetry. He was William Faulkner's first Turkish translator 40 years ago, and published a book on Faulkner in the early 60s. Among his many honors is the title, Knight Grand Cross, the most excellent order of the British Empire, conferred on him by Queen Elizabeth II. In 1971, he became Turkey's Minister of Culture, the first person ever to hold this cabinet post, and he created the Ministry of Culture. From 1980 to 1982, he served as Turkey's ambassador for cultural affairs Currently he is a member of the Executive Board of uh, UNESCO. (laughs) Talal.
2: Gods of light, grant me this bliss. Let my soft, gentle darling and I join our lives forever. Mighty angels, give us power so that my black-eyed sweetheart and I can live and laugh together. Mr. Chairman, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, this is a poem written in the 6th century in central Anatolia. It is the first poem by a poet whose name has come down to us. Uh, The reason I start with that is that I'm working on on an anthology which will be entitled The Enduring Echo, 15 Centuries of Turkish Poetry, the Enduring Echo is a reference to a line in a poem by the Poet Laureate of Suleiman the Magnificent, Baki, whose last name means enduring, and he once wrote an onomatopoeic line which goes in Turkish as, Baki kalan buku bede birhoş and it roughly translates into English as, what endures in this dome is but a pleasant echo. Now, I don't know what chances this anthology will have to get published because getting an anthology of Turkish poetry is as difficult as distributing food in Somalia. And there is no likelihood ever that U.S. Marines will help the cause of Turkish wars. Uh, Like uh, so many uh, small countries, Turkey in terms of its literature is doomed to marginalia, which is a sort of virginalia as well most of Turkish poetry of any period in that 15th centuries remains untouched, pristine. Maybe it is better that way because some beautiful poems are not being ruined as a result of not getting translated. I personally have a terribly guilty conscience about having violated so many poems in translation. So far I've published about 4,000 poems in translation both ways and that is 4,000 agonies for me. And uh, the reason why uh, Turkey is um, so important as far as poetry is concerned, that it expressed its culture, it expressed its uh, uh, intellectual resources mostly in verse. Uh, As a pundit I know once put it, poetry embodies the mythos, the ethos, the pathos, and the bathos, and the logos, and the tepos, and the eros and thanatos of the Turkish anthropos. No other figure has served the way the poet has throughout our history as both the hero and the antihero as the symbol of joy and tragedy at once, as a special human being we look up to and sometimes trample upon. To immortalize the poet, we sometimes immolate him or her. And I have a sort of Hollman's literary law which goes as, "When things get worse, Turks turn to verse." judging by the outpouring of poetry things must be getting worse all the time and I uh, once wrote a doggerel about that which goes as follows for anyone worthy of the name Turk poetry is a national quirk almost a duty he cannot shirk it erupts wherever emotions lurk it enchants the postal clerk and the soda jerk when he hears it his passions perk it can only please him, it cannot irk it wipes off the tear and the smirk For the Turk, poetry is even a lovely way to go berserk. (laughs) And of course, before the Turks came into Anatolia, Asia Minor from Central Asia, Anatolia had uh, at least 3,000 years of poetic tradition. The Hittites, of course, there were Sumerian intrusions of poetry into Anatolia. The Assyrians left some of their poems there. The Greeks, certainly Homer, as you well know, walked up and down the Aegean coast of Turkey and parts of the Epic of Gilgamesh seem to have been engendered on the Anatolian soil. The Armenians, the Byzantines, the Seljuks, the Ottomans and modern Turks, they all created poetry. And one great early poet among them was the medieval mystic who was known as (coughs) Yunus Emre, a great folk poet. Uh, Humanist, a humanitarian who wrote lines as whatever you love that is your faith and he rhapsodized once he said go and let it be known to all lovers I am the man who gave his heart to love I turn into a wild duck of passion I am the one who takes the swiftest dive from the waves of the sea I take water and offer it all the way to the skies in adoration like a cloud I soar I am the one who flies to heavens above. He also wrote such rhymed couplets as, I'm not here on earth for strife, love is the mission of my life. He also wrote a very whimsical poem which has very deep, uh, in fact, layers upon layers of symbolic mystical significance. He says in a poem written probably in the early part of the 14th century, I climbed to the branches of a plum tree and I helped myself to the grapes up there. The owner of the orchard scolded me, what are you devouring my walnuts for? I dumped sun-baked mud into the cauldron and boiled it together with the north wind. What on earth could this thing be, asked someone. Dipping the grapes, I put them in his hand. I snatched one of the wings of a sparrow and loaded it onto 40 ox carts. Even 40 spans failed to pull it, though, so the sparrow wing got stuck in these parts. A fly caught an eagle, lifted it high, and smack onto the ground, a thumping thrust. What I tell you is the truth, not a lie. With my own eyes, I saw the rising dust. I had a wrestling match with a cripple. With no hands, he grappled me by my legs. I struggled, but couldn't make a ripple. He burnt me inside out, down to my dregs. The fish, it turns out, climbed the poplar tree to gobble the pickles of tar up there. The stork gave birth to a baby donkey. You better get the meaning, don't just there. And it goes on like that. And uh, this satiric sense um, continued in the Ottoman tradition as well uh, from the 15th century onwards. And here uh, I'll read to you a poem uh, in rhymed couplets uh, written by a shehi in the very early part of the 15th century. Shehi was a court doctor, but he just couldn't refrain himself from uh, satirizing and criticizing the inequities in uh, Ottoman society at that time, and he contrasted a starving donkey with well-fed oxen. Once there was a feeble donkey pining away, bent under the weight of his load he used to bray, carrying wood here and water there was his plight, he felt miserable and languished day and night. So heavy were the burdens he was forced to bear, the sore spots on his skin left him without hair. His flesh and skin, too, nearly fell off his body. Under his loads, tip to toe, he was bloody. Whoever saw his appearance remarked, in fact, surprising that this bag of bones can walk intact. His lips dangled and his jaws had begun to droop. He got tired if a fly rested on his croup. Goose pimples covered his body whenever he saw with those starving eyes just a handful of straw. On his ears there was an assembly of the crows. Over the slime of his eyes the flies marched and rose. Whenever the saddle was taken off his rumps, what remained looked altogether like a dog's dumps. One day his master decided to show pity, and for once he treated the beast with charity. He took the saddle and let him loose on the grass. As he walked on, while grazing, suddenly the ass saw some robust oxen pacing the pasture land. Their eyes were fiery and their buttocks grand. With all the grass they gobbled up, they were so stout, if one hair were plucked, all that fat would seep out. Jauntily they walked, carefree, their hearts filled with zest, Summer sheds, winter barns, and nice places to rest. No halter's pain for them, nor the saddle's anguish, no heavy loads causing them to wail or languish. Struck with wonder and full of envy, he stood there, brooding over his own plight, which was beyond compare. We were meant to be the equals of these creatures. We have the same hands and feet, same forms and features. Why, then, is the head of each ox graced by a crown? And why must poverty and dire need weigh us down. Now, ox graced by a crown, those were of course very insulting words, so he had to flee for his life. And he led a terrible life after that until he was forgiven by the sultan because he was a great physician and and a great poet indeed. In the Ottoman period there were some very fine women poets as well. One was a Michrihatun who lived in the very early part of the 15th century, she died in 1506 actually, and, and she was a, a very liberated woman who uh, came up with the uh, great couplet, it is better to have one woman with class than a thousand males all of whom are crass. That is feminism for you, isn't it? Uh, early, early 16th century. And Suleiman the Magnificent who also lived in the 16th century, wrote 3,000 poems. Some of them are very naughty indeed. Here is um, a sort of erotic poem by Suleiman the Magnificent. Now that you have a free hand, kiss the coral lips of your darling. First press your face on hers, then kiss her alluring eyes. Your head is now crowned with glory because you are right at her feet. Take your lips into your mouth, be a man, kiss her heart and soul. No sugar is as sweet as she, only wine is delicious like her. She is the one who serves the drinks, rub your face on her feet, kiss her skirt. While her hands are busy playing games, wrap your arms around her, fondle her fragrant mole, kiss her sweet-scented eyebrows. Lover, she is God's gift to you, cherish her value, keep caressing her neck, and off and on kiss her smiling lips. It was in that period that Suleiman, the magnificence interpreter and translator, a Greek uh, by the name of Yunus Bey, a convert to, to Islam, who translated from and into uh, Ottoman Turkish, Italian and Greek, uh, was honored by a big mosque in Istanbul, the translator's or interpreter's mosque. And to the best of my knowledge, that's the only monument ever erected for a translator anywhere in the world. <laughs> and I hope since many of you are distinguished translators, you will all have uh, a monument, a temple or a church or a mosque <laughs> erected in, in your honor instead of all these critical views that you get from all over. And also in this same century, there was a Meali who wrote an elegy to his cat. He is dead and gone, alas, what shall I do, pity, pussy? The flames of death devoured you, a calamity, pussy. The lion of doom tricked and mauled you, woe is me, pussy. Alas, what shall I do now, oh pity, pretty pussy? That cat of mine was so playful, such a wonderful guy. He had a grand time catching the birds that fly in the sky. He'd eat anything he got, a roll, a patty, a pie. Alas, what shall I do now, oh, pity, pretty pussy? Sure, he caught sparrows just like that, but hens and geese as well. Great fighter, he even turned the lion's life into hell. Soldier of faith, he'd kill mice as though they were the infidel. Alas, what shall I do now, oh, pity, pretty pussy? Fearless like a lion, the ferocious beast in combat. You think he was old? No, he was a young and sprightly cat. Every hair of his whiskers was a scimitar, that's that. Alas, what shall I do now? Oh, pity, pretty pussy. No singing virtuoso could boast of a voice like his. Venus would lay her lute down when she heard his melodies. My cat despised all the sinners as well as the Sufis. Alas, what shall I do now? Oh, pity, pretty pussy. How shrewd he was, a fox. And beyond his years, wisdom-wise, he'd take on the wolf. The tiger and the other big guys, he'd slink like a cypress, had black brows, honey-colored eyes. Alas, what shall I do now? Oh, pity, pretty pussy. I adored him with all my heart as my beloved, whom I would hold in my embrace every night in my bedroom. His tail made my whole house spick and span like a magic broom. Alas, what shall I do now? Oh, pity, pretty pussy. All this was in connection with the great passion the Turks have had for, for poetry. Few nations have produced more verse and uh, as little prose as the Ottoman Turks have. And many works which in other countries are quite naturally in prose were in full meter and rhyme in Turkey. Intellectuals used to correspond in verse. Historians wrote their chronicles in poetic form or at least interspersed poetic lines into their prose or sometimes used internal rhymes. Sultan Murat the, the fourth in the uh, early 17th century once sent a long military dispatch to his commander-in-chief in full stanzaic term and the commander-in-chief replied in kind using exactly the same uh, prosodic uh, form and the same stanzaic form as well. Imagine, for instance, Truman and MacArthur corresponding like that. And the Turks even produced in the 19th century chemistry textbooks in full meter and rhyme they even compiled dictionaries which were in full verse I mean they had dictionaries in uh, Armenian Turkish uh, Turkish Greek, Turkish French and I'll I'll just read two lines uh, to you from the Turkish French dictionary Allah, Dieu, Gökler, Siyah Yer, Ter, Commence Tida, Daim, toujours Infini, Beintirah And it goes on like that, a whole dictionary like that. And, of course, part of all this was a mechanism of social and political criticism all in verse. In the 19th century, a great statesman who could also uh, level criticism at the powers that be was writing lines like, those who embezzle millions are ensconced in glory. Those who filch a few pennies are condemned to hard labor. Pardon is the privilege of the holders of high office. Is the penal code used only against the meek? And women poets were writing some very lovely romantic poems. Um, And Nighyar who died in 1918, uh, she was um, multilingual, knew French, Persian, Greek, Arabic, and German in addition to her Turkish. And she once wrote a uh, lovely lyric poem It's entitled, Tell Me Again. Am I your only love in the whole wide world now? Am I really the only object of your love? If passions rage in your mind, if love springs eternal in your heart, is it all meant for me? Tell me again. Tell me right now, am I the one who inspires all your dark thoughts, all your sadness? Share with me what you feel, what you think. Come, my love, pour into my heart whatever gives you so much pain. Tell me again. And from the 1920s on, modern Turkish poetry was dominated by Nazım Hikmet, who has been very beautifully translated into English by a husband and wife team, uh, and there are about eight books published in America uh, featuring his poetry. He was a communist who uh, spent many years in uh, Turkish prisons, and I, I think. Uh, we have to pay tribute to his memory he died in 1963 and if Penn had been more active in the cause of writers in prison at that time it's possible that he might have been freed from prison or he might have been brought back to Turkey from his exile in the Soviet Union and in Poland once in prison in the late 1920s he wrote a very famous poem entitled Letter to My Wife my one and only You say, in your last letter, I have a splitting headache. My heart is bewildered. You say, if they hang you, if I lose you, I cannot live. You can live, my dear wife. Like black smoke, my memory will fade in the wind. You will live, my heart's red-haired woman. In the 20th century, mourning the dead lasts no more than a year. Death, a corpse swinging from a rope, I just cannot resign my heart a death like that but rest assured my love if the hairy hand of a poor gypsy like a black spider slips a rope around my neck they will look in vain into the blue eyes of nazim to see fear in the twilight of my last morning i will see my friends and you and i will only take into the pit the sorrow of an unfinished song my wife my good-hearted golden bee with eyes sweeter than honey Why did I write you, they asked for a death sentence? The trial has just started and they don't pluck a man's head like a turnip. He also paid tribute to the women of Anatolia, the poor peasant women who were abused, who were exploited, who were beaten and also sometimes loved. It's a short poem entitled, Our Women, and women, our women, with their awesome and blessed hands, with their lean, tiny chins and huge eyes, our mothers, wives, darlings, who die as though they have never lived at all and whose places at our table happen to be behind the cows. Women we abduct to the hills and for whom we go to jail. Women harvesting in tobacco fields, woodcutting at the market. Women harnessed to the plowshares. Women are women who are ours in barns and sheepfolds their jaunty heavy hips and castanets in the glitter of knives plunged into the ground. But there were some lighter poems also. A modern poet who also contributed very extensively to the further modernization of Turkish poetry was Orhan Veli Kanek who has also been translated into English. There are two books featuring his selected poems and he poked fun at many things during his brief life. He died at age 36, and one short poem goes as follows. For our homeland, all the things we did for this land of ours, some of us died, some of us gave speeches. And for the hell of it, all the pretty women thought the poems I wrote on love were meant for them, and I always felt badly about having written them just for the hell of it. In the 1960s and and 70s, uh, writing poetry for social purposes, ideological poetry, became a great fashion among Turkish poets and they were writing all all sorts of very angry poems, venting their, their fury at the inequities of society, etc., And that became almost formulaic. Everybody was writing poems like that. And the satirist by the name of Salah Birsel deftly satirized this phenomenon. It's a poem entitled Poetry Lesson. Take love for mankind as your topic and free verse as prosody. Relevant or not, whenever it occurs to you, insert the word hunger at a convenient spot. Near the end of the poem, rhyme strife with the right to good life there. That's the way to become a great poet. And the greatest living woman poet uh, spoke about the plight of women, not the fear of shivering by Gultanakan, who will be 60 years old next year. We are the tired warriors worn down by defeat after defeat, too timid or ashamed to enjoy a drink Someone gathers all the suns, keeps people waiting for them. It is not the fear of shivering, but warming up. We are the tired warriors. So many loves frightened us off. They have held the mountain roads. The arrows are shot. The traps are set. Someone forgives our ugliness in the name of friendship. We set out on flat roads again without arrows or rabbits. We are the daunted warriors. So many loves frightened us off and another poet who died about 10 years ago, made fun of the critics. They know their English, the Victorian age, Eliot, Schmellet, are complete on their shelves. They know their French, from its origins to the present, the grasshopper and the ant from La Fontaine to our day. I'm not even mentioning those who know Italian or German, the erudite scholars, those who do it the American way. Bookworms, when I open the windows in the bazaar at the cafe in the sun's garden, Turkish is a lively rose. They smell poetry as fruit vendors smell the rear end of melons to find out if they are ripe or not. They forbid you the heart's most natural right, which is to sing sincere songs in the mother tongue. They set strict rules and laws, the bugs of taste and chests, eating away at life's fabric, Worms nibbling away at the core of poetry. They are big wigs like cabinet members or congressmen who live it up and dupe poetry at every election. And I'll close with um, a short poem which expresses optimism and a great deal of faith by Nazim Ahmed, that poet who suffered so much throughout his life because of oppression and now His poems are being read all over Turkey. There's there's fortunately no ban on his work or on his historical and literary personality anymore. He wrote in a four-line poem, the most beautiful ocean is the one we have yet to cross. The most beautiful child has yet to grow up. The loveliest days of our lives are those we have yet to live. And the most beautiful things I'd like to tell you are those I have yet to tell. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Talat. Ritva Pum's translations of literature and ethnography from Finnish and Estonian (coughs) include works by more writers than I can number and none that I can pronounce. She is the translator and editor of Kalevala Mythology, a study of the Finnish epic, which was published by the Indiana University Press in 1989. In 1990, Kalevala Mythology received the Salome Pitre International Award for ethnographical studies in Italy. Foghorses, her collection of Eva-Lisa Maner's poetry, received a Columbia University Translation Center Award. She's the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. This past summer, 92, in Helsinki, the Finnish Ministry of Education gave her a translation award. She holds a degree in Uralic languages from Columbia University. Ritva will be reading from the prose of Matiunt in an Estonian and from the poetry of Eva-Lisa Maner, who is Finnish. Ritva, please. <laughs>
3: First, a word about uh, Finnish and Estonian. They're non-Indo-European languages belonging to the Finno-Ugric family, which includes Hungarian and about 12 related languages in the former Soviet Union. They're spoken by over 20 million people in in total. The Finno-Ugric languages are agglutinative, and they're characterized by a large number of cases. they have. <laughs> do you want me to? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Okay, fine. Um, they uh, gender and uh, future tense are not marked in Finnish and Estonian, nor do they use articles or prepositions. Okay. There's a preponderance of vowels as opposed to consonants and Finnish, in fact, has vowel harmony. The relationship of Finnish and Estonian is akin to that of Italian and Portuguese, for example. Now, I wanted to start off with, with, more, with some poems by Eva-Lisa Manner, um, and she is one of Finland's most renowned poets. She began writing in the 1940s and continues writing to this day. She's written 12 books of poetry, and it was her collection, Tema Matka, This Journey, published in 1956, which crystallized Finnish modernist movement in poetry of the 1950s. Manner has also written drama, novels, and a great deal of criticism. She's translated into Finnish from English, German, Swedish, Spanish, including such authors as Thomas Tranströmer, Hermann Hesse, Ben Jonson, and Shakespeare and she has also rendered a great deal of Japanese and Chinese literature into Finnish. When the shore and reflection are one and the same and whole and still the marriage of sky and water, when the mirror image is deep and clear and animals wander and clouds and the dark forest murmurs in the depths windless, All that is needed to shatter the illusion is a bird's wing dipping in the water. Fond confession of light and water to the world. Delicate as silk, but it knots a union. And the world, fresh and beautiful as after rain or creation, or a change of heart or a long illness, is solitary, pregnant, alone, limb by limb. The world is a poem of my senses. Markets, speeding cars, trees, dust, derive their hues from me. The world is a poem of my senses and will cease when I die. This nearness, this long moment, the softness of skin, exist only in me, for me. They are merely an image or an aura encircling the dream of my senses. When I borrow an objective eye from you, I see, as though through binoculars reversed, how you move down the bright streets, paired beneath the lit marquees. You are far off, farther and farther off. You are still there, but vanishing, small. It is easy to step into Hades, and Pluto's gates are always open. But the return is difficult, for the road of return is barred by cositas and forests, he said, and likely he knew as he traveled the unknown shore in Aeneas' tracks. And once again, the tracks filled with water. I too returned once across lakes like tin through a forest where, with each step, I became a bit more. tree. Everything was blue. Then I came to the anonymous landscape of silence between life and death. Now I am here where the forest does not reach. I open the shutters. Snow is falling. The hot city lies far below. I do not see it, but I know. Two kilometers more. I open the book like a gate. The sound of sheep. Snow. It is summer, a trail, a sod hut, a stream, forget-me-nots, snow, a fence built of earth and stone. Children flee like animals. I close the gate like a book. Orpheus in the netherworld. You looked behind you. She stiffened. The past is never reversed, reflected, bent. It is not susceptible to change. Yet it is true, denser than your limbs which glisten in the sun. You never catch the echo which restrains. The minutes close in her hands, become objects cold as time. She drops them, villages, mountains, and echoes. You journey on and are ever wounded by the stones which remained behind. As a test, I set my will against the will of matter. I concentrated, stared at a light bulb, struggled all through the night. I vexed brittle filaments. At last, the light began to tremble. Then it died out. Darkness came. I had won. The wind howls, rain falls, My hair stands straight on my head, wrote Motokyo of the Silk Drum. He meant the cold regions of the Buddhist hell. Are they not in the heart? Where else? My heart is black. It is a well. A horseman rises from it. The horse and the man are black. The tidings are black. The wind howls. The rain falls. My hair stands straight on my head. And the sole reason? I have offended my friend. A distant hidden room, the scent of harness leather, a dusky carriage shed, vast hope. And childhood slipped through the narrow gate, and a pony cart came to fetch me on the coarse sands. The coachman, white glove, adorned with a whip and a zinging lash. We drove through sun-speckled groves, light, grief, light, memory, snow, and suddenly the driver vanished and hands alone restrained the horse and took me I know not where. The lake is filled with sourceless light You could now journey beyond evening and vanish as from film left in the sun. A light and effortless departure, brittle images composed of light and matter dim, grow scant, faint, return to the light. the the second author whose work I'd like to read this evening um, is Matti Unt and Matti Unt belongs to the group of writers, artists, and intellectuals in Estonia who began their work early in the 1960s and provided voice and inspiration for Estonians during the difficult decades which followed, often at peril to themselves, I have to add. And some members of this circle, in, other members of this circle, include Lennart Meri, uh, a historian and an ethnographic filmmaker who was elected president of Estonia this autumn, and the poet Paul erik who was recently appointed Minister of Culture. Matiunt is Estonia's foremost modernist. He has written a dozen novels and novellas, many plays, and a great deal of short fiction. His work has been translated into Finnish, Norwegian, Russian, German, English, and he has received awards both for his writing and for his work as a a director in theater, and at present Mattiunt is an artistic director of the Tallinn State Theater. The piece I'll read this evening is from a novel entitled Doomsday in Tallinn, which, is published, which was published in 1990. It's the story of an anarchist who is obsessed with the concept of electricity and <coughs> wants to blow up a generating plant in Tallinn. In this excerpt, he is awaiting the arrival of Tissen, a childhood friend whom he has not seen for several years. And as he waits, he thinks back to life on the Kullhaws in rural Estonia, where he and Tissen grew up. Okay. During our childhood, the hare were very swift, that I do remember. Often they leapt out of nowhere, froze for an instant, and fled, which, it, which is why it was never possible to get a closer look at them They always displayed only their tails. They would disappear into the tall grass or behind snowdrifts depending upon the time of year. The worst they were capable of was stripping apple trees of their bark, especially during a winter of heavy snow. That is why, before winter, tree trunks were swaddled in paper or even in fir branches. Hair tracks were very distinctive. Two in front, almost side by side, followed by two in single file. Wolf tracks formed an even line. The distinctiveness of hare tracks was, of course, due to the fact that the hare didn't run, but hopped. I don't remember many hare being together at one time. I got the impression they are solitary creatures. Nor do I remember hare being eaten. There were few hunters in Estonia. During the years following the war, after all, a critical period in the life of our country had just taken place. Many were lost to the war, many fled abroad, many were taken to Siberia. And as a result, there were few hunters. And who then was to shoot a hare, if not a hunter? It's true, there was a family, someone living somewhere, who raised rabbits. But these weren't hare, of course and the hare had red eyes which frightened me. I couldn't imagine how anyone could eat hare. Theirs was an empty glance, but the hare were said to be courageous, and that in fact, their empty glance signified courage. Hare did appear in dangerous places, and they were quickly forced to flee, but the important thing was that they had come. From materialistic books, I learned that a hare's ears function as a temperature regulating mechanism. To this day, I don't believe it, just as I don't believe in evolution either. I think a hare's ears are meant to bother and hinder it in hiding from the enemy. And does a hare lack enemies? There's always someone who appears from somewhere and demands your life. Now, an ego another time an owl or a chicken hawk, often a wolf, a lynx, especially a fox, or even a cat, and sometimes all of them at once. And so the hare wanders and cowers on the moonlit snow beneath the windows of the village social club, while inside waltz music is heard, intermingled with marches, urging one to be happy. During those difficult years, When the first kolhauses were formed, hare slept in the snow, and the forest hare, in fact, slept completely beneath the snow. Often, hare were trapped onto the highway by headlights because they are incapable of fleeing that beam of light for the dark forest. It's true they ran at a speed of 50 kilometers, but not for long. Then, the car usually caught up with them and the bloodthirsty driver ran over the hare to the accompaniment of rippling laughter from a female passenger clad in an astrakhan coat. Afterwards, the car disappeared around a bend and the corpse of the hare was left lying on the road in the midst of darkness and the rustling of leaves. Only a solitary partisan coming from the direction of the evening glow Stepped over it, or a timorous, doe-eyed woman, a pioneer leader, took pity on it, buried it beneath last year's dried grass. We, Tissen and I, remembered those days, although from time to time we consider them fictions, as we do ourselves. I thought I thought you might like to hear this uh, last couple of sentences in Estonian. Pärast katus autu käänaku taha ja jänese laip jäi teele lamama, pimedusse ja lehtede kahinasse. Ainult yksi ehalt tulev metsavend astustast üle või halastasta ta peale kartlik, hirvesilmne naispojoneeri lõ- juht, kes laiba kulu alla mut- mattis Meie tissenika melettä neid aegu. ehki aeg ajalt, Viamene fictionitex, nakuka made end Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you very much. The host is supposed to read something, is that right? Yes. Please. I will give it a try. I've been translating The Odyssey for a while a couple selections from it, um, one rather quiet, one rather loud. Um, Odysseus has gone down to the world of the dead in book 11, and there he sees his mother. Um, the shock is a silent one, but a very great one. He had not known that his mother had died. Indeed, he left her alive 20 years before when he set out for Troy. I stood guard there, steadfast, until my mother approached and drank the dark, clouding blood. And she, she knew me at once and wailed out, and her words went winging home to me, flying home. Oh, my son, what brings you down to the world of death and darkness? You are still alive. So hard for the living to look on all of this. Great rivers flow between us, terrible waters, the ocean first of all. No one could ever ford that stream on foot, only aboard some sturdy craft. Have you just come from Troy, wandering long years with your men and ship? Haven't you been to Ithaca yet? Haven't you seen your wife <coughs> in your own halls? Mother, I replied, I had no choice. I had to venture down to the house of death to consult the shade of Tiresias, seer of Thebes. Never yet have I neared Achaea, never once set foot on my own land. Always wandering, endless hardship from that day, I first set sail with King Agamemnon, bound for Troy, good stallion country, to fight the Trojans there. But tell me about yourself, and spare me nothing. What sort of death overcame you, laid you low? Some lingering illness? Or did Artemis showering arrows come with her painless shafts and bring you down. Tell me of father. Tell of the son I left behind. Does my kingdom still rest safely in their hands? Or has it passed to another man at long last? Because men think that I'll return no more. Tell me about my wedded wife, her mood, her mind. Still standing fast beside our son, still guarding our great estate, secure as ever, or has she wed some other countryman at last, the finest prince among them? Surely, surely, my noble mother replied at once, she is waiting still in your halls, that long-enduring spirit. Her life, an endless hardship, wasting away the nights, weeping away the days. Your rich kingdom is not yet passed to another man. Telemachus manages all your great estates in peace. He attends the public banquets shared with all, the feasts a man of justice should provide, for all the lords invite him. As for your father, he holds out on his farm, alone. He never goes to town, with no beds for him there, no blankets, glossy sheets. All winter long he sleeps in the lodge with servants, in the ashes by the fire, his body wrapped in rags. But when summer comes and the bumper crops of harvest, any spot on the rising ground of the vineyard rose, he makes his bed, heaped high with fallen leaves. And there he lies in misery, with his old age grinding hard upon him, too. And his grief grows as he longs for your return. And I, with the same grief, I died and met my fate. No keen-eyed hunters showering arrows through the halls approached and brought me down with painless shafts. Nor did some hateful illness attack me that so often wastes away the body and drains our limbs of power. No, it was my longing for you, my shining Odysseus, you and your cunning, you and your gentle ways, that tore away my life that had been sweet. And I, my mind in turmoil, How I longed to embrace my mother's spirit, dead as she was. Three times I rushed toward her, desperate to hold her. Three times she fluttered through my fingers, sifting away like a shadow, dissolving like a dream. And each time the grief stabbed to the heart, sharper. Yes, and I, I cried out to her, words winging into the darkness, Mother, why not wait for me? How I longed to hold you. So even here in the house of death, We can fling our loving arms around each other, take some joy in the tears that numb the heart. Or is this just some rape that dread Persephone sends my way to make me ache with sorrow all the more? My noble mother reassured me at once. My son, the most ill-fated of all men alive, this is no deception sent by Queen Persephone. It is just the way of mortals when we die. Sinews no longer bind the flesh and bones together. The fire in all its fury burns the body down to ashes. Once life slips from the white bones, and the spirit, rustling, flutters away, flown like a dream. But you must hunger for sunlight. Go, quickly. Remember all these things, so one day you can tell them to your wife. Odysseus and the Cyclops' cave, having his vengeance at last for the cannibal meals the Cyclops has made once too often. The ruthless brute, lurching up, he lunged out with his hands toward my mates, and snatching two at once, wrapping them on the ground, he knocked them dead like puppies. Their brains gushed out all over, soaked the floor, and he ripped them limb from limb, and made his meal, bolting them down like a mountain lion, leaving nothing, devouring entrails, flesh, sucking the marrow from their bones, while we, we flung our arms to Zeus, wept and cried aloud, looking on at his grisly work, paralyzed, appalled. But once the Cyclops had stuffed his enormous gut with human flesh, washing it down with raw milk, he slept in his cave, sprawled among his flocks. And I with my fighting heart, I thought at first to steal up to him, draw the sharp sword at my hip and stab his chest where the midriff packs the liver. I groped for the fatal spot, but a fresh thought held me back. Then and there we'd have sealed our own doom as well. How could we with our naked hands roll back that slab? He'd set to block the cavern's gaping mouth. So we lay there groaning, waiting sacred dawn. When young dawn with a rose-red finger shone once more, the monster relit his fire and milked his sleek flocks, each in order, putting a suckling underneath each dam, and soon as he would briskly finished all his chores, he snatched up two more mates and made his meal. Well fed, he drove his fat sheep from the cave, lightly lifting the huge door slab up and away, then flipped it back in place as a hunter flips the lid of his quiver shut. With piercing whistles, turning his flocks to the hills, he left me there, the heart inside me, crying out for blood. How could I pay him back? Would Athena grant me glory? Here was the plan that struck my mind as best. The cyclops' great club. There it lay by the folds, olive wood, full of sap. He'd lopped it off to brandish once it dried. Looking it over, we judged it huge enough to be the mast of some black ship with her 20 oars, a big beamy freighter that plows through miles of sea, So long, so thick, it loomed before our eyes. Well, straddling it now, I I chopped off a fathom's length, pushed it over to comrades, told them to plane it down, and they made it all smooth as I bent and shaved the tip to a stabbing point. I turned it over the blazing fire to char it good and hard, then hid it well, buried deep under the dung that littered the cavern's floor in wet clumps. And now I ordered my shipmates all to cast lots, who'd brave it out with me to hoist our stake and grind it into his eye when sleep had laid him low. Luck of the draw, I got the very ones I would have picked myself. Four good men, and I in the lead made five. Nightfall brought him back, herding his woolly sheep, and he quickly drove the fat flock into the vaulted cave, all of them leaving none outside in the walled yard, suspecting something perhaps, or a god led him on. Then he hoisted the huge slab to block the door and squatted to milk his sheep and bleating goats, all in order, putting a suckling underneath each dam. And soon as he briskly finished all his chores, he snatched up two more mates and made his meal. But now, at last, lifting an ivy bowl on high, brimmed with my dark wine, I went right up to the cyclops inviting, here, cyclops, here, come try this wine it will wash down your feast of human flesh. Judge for yourself what stock our ship has stored. I brought it here to make you a fine libation, hoping you'd pity me, Cyclops, send me home. But your rages are insufferable. You barbarian, how can a man on earth come visit you after this? Your savagery tramples all that makes us human. At that, he seized the bowl and tossed it off, and the heady wine pleased him with a vengeance. More, he demanded a second bowl A hearty helping And tell me your name now, quickly So I can give my guest a gift to warm his heart Our soil yields a cyclops' powerful, full-bodied wine And the rains from Zeus build its strength But this, this is nectar, ambrosia This flows from heaven So he declared And I poured him another fiery bowl Three times I filled it, three times he drained it down, the fool. Then, when the wine was swirling around his brain, then I approached my host with soothing, winning words. So, you ask me the name I'm known by, Cyclops? I will tell you. But you must give me a guest gift as you promised. Nobody. That's my name. Nobody. So my mother and father call me, all my friends but he boomed back at once from his ruthless heart. Nobody, I'll eat nobody last of all his friends, all the others first, that's my gift to you. With that, he toppled over, sprawled full length, flat on his back, and lay there, his massive neck slumped to one side, and sleep that conquers all overwhelmed him now. As wine came gushing, spurting up from his gullet with chunks of human flesh, vomiting, blind drunk. Now, by God, I thrust our steak in a deep bed of embers to get it glowing hot and fired up my comrades. Courage, no panic now, and don't hang back. And just as the olive steak, green as it was, was about to catch fire, the glow terrific, I dragged it from the flames, my men clustering round as a power on high breathed giant courage through us all. Hoisting high that olive stake with its stabbing point, they rammed it right into the monster's eye, while I, I flung my weight on it from above and bored it home as a shipwright drills his timber with brace and bit that mates below, whipping the strap back and forth, spin and the drill keeps digging deeper, deeper. So we seized our stake with its fiery tip and whirled it round and round in the giant's eye till blood came boiling up around that smoking shaft and the hot blast singed his brows and eyelids round the core as the broiling eyeball burst, its crackling roots blazed and hissed as a blacksmith plunges a heavy ax or ads in a bath of ice and the metal screeches steam as its temper hardens. That's the iron's strength. So the eye of the cyclops sizzled round that stake. He loosed a hideous roar that echoed round the rocks and drove us scuttling off in terror. He wrenched the spike from his eye and out it came with a red geyser of blood. He flung it aside with frantic hands and mad with pain. He bellowed out for help from his neighbour cyclops living round about in caves on windswept heights. Hearing his cries, they lumbered up from every quarter, Looming around his cave and asked what ailed him Why, Polyphemus, what on earth's the trouble Roaring out through the god-sent night to rob us of our sleep Surely no one's rustling your flocks against your will Surely no one's trying to kill you now by stealth or force Nobody, friends, <laughs> Polyphemus bellowed back from his cave Nobody's killing me now by stealth and not by force and they all let fly with a burst of free advice. If you're alone and no one's trying to overpower you, why, it must be some plague sent by mighty Zeus, and no escape from that. You'd better pray to your father, Lord Poseidon. They lumbered off, but the heart inside me laughed to think how nobody's name, my great cunning stroke, had duped them, trapped them all. And shall I ask the translators to come join me at the table?
3: <laughs> wonderful.
2: Not a chance. Yeah. Not a chance. Hold <laughs> that should be electrocuted. <laughs> no, no. We would make the New York
0: Post anyway. No publicity for I bad. was going to say anything to yeah. get us publicity. <laughs> anything to keep us from being nameless. Would you repeat questions from the floor into the of mic course I will. recording? Of course I will. <laughs> Are there questions from the floor? I do hope. We couldn't have answered all your questions. We must have raised some. Rika. The question for Peter. People who know the Latin or can read the Latin,
1: are they complaining that the English is more difficult? That's an interesting question. Did you question. all hear
0: this question? Yeah. Uh, people complain that the Latin is not are as... They? Are, they? are they? Are people... Are, oh, sorry. <laughs> fine. Sorry. <laughs> are people complaining that the English is more difficult than the original Latin? Well... Rough question if I've ever
1: heard one. Well, I'll tell you. The interesting thing is that um, <coughs> nowadays uh, uh, most people don't understand Latin uh, nor do they do they understand most of early English. So I'm in a really an unassailable position. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, I would like I would like to to to, to um, um, I would like to meet somebody who who who, who, who can actually root uh, uh, root through what I did alongside the Latin. Um, uh, uh, but I'm I'm a I have a a, a strange suspicion that I've uh, um, made a. a, a, a a translation that, that perhaps uh, I'm the only one capable of reading <laughs> uh, 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 it, it broadens the or puts a new wrinkle on the idea of idiolect
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> other questions please Bert Pike paraphrase poorly uh, has our extreme self-consciousness about linguistic usage um, hindered us, helped us as translators, what effect has it had upon us as translators at any rate, um, working in the 20th century? Who would like to have a go at that? All you teachers of language.
3: basic, uh, it's not that much this this kind of self-consciousness, it's that so many words are are taken over by the media and you can't use them anymore. (laughs) That's more of a a problem, I think, than uh, a self-consciousness for me.
0: Might I ask you whether you think uh, we are more self-conscious than earlier ages, or are we self-conscious simply in a way different from uh, well, probably, the extreme probably. kinds of scrutiny, which were often applied to language by earlier.
1: May I please? Uh, I, in the printed versions of what I read, I do mention. Um, uh, I say here, in uh, in producing a new translation of a previously translated classic, what practical use is made of the flowerings of yesteryear? Generally, very little. Uh, and one of the reasons is that. Uh, the self consciousness that Bert Pike mentioned, I do believe makes 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 uh, uh, makes of all of most people uh, uh, working in poetry today uh, uh, and and translators uh, who are retranslating works that have been already uh, translated at, 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 at a previous level uh, at a previous time um, it puts a pressure to become innovative. Uh, uh, I was almost about to say that makes one almost an exquisite of some kind, but I don't really mean that. But one has to be, one is very, very careful not to use w- the the phrases uh, that were used by uh, another translator 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Uh, and the use of the dictionary will often become uh, 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 exclusive. (laughs) You find, uh, you make sure that you don't use the words that were used before. Um, uh, In this respect, we all, writers have all become perhaps artists, whereas at another era, it's a question of just getting the job done uh, uh I, I don't mean this in any kind of a judgmental way. I just think of myself sometimes uh, the way I work, the way I write generally is uh, uh I really have to be careful that well, w- as a writer, you're always aware of the fact that somehow whatever you put down on the page, you say this can't be right. it's been done before, and uh, every word every sentence turns out to be a terrible cliche somehow. Uh, at first, uh, at first reading, um, so I think that Bert's supposition uh, uh, opens up some terrible thoughts. It opens up some
0: terrible <laughs> thoughts in my mind too, Peter. And um, I don't mind sharing them with you. The whole science of philology, as you might put it, um, means that more often than not, we know. Of and the more we know, the more impossible the task becomes. Because it's one thing uh, to read commentary, which becomes voluminous. Uh, it's one thing to read lexical glosses and see their extraordinary range. Um, that is knowledge which, without which uh, we would not be able to proceed, I guess. At the same time, the translator is
2: In my opinion, I think self-consciousness is a very apt and and powerful term. And uh, I I feel it's essentially the minimum that is necessary for the aesthetic, for the creative aspect of the process of translating. It's a sine qua non. It's uh, at the same time an imperative, a minimum. Uh, But I have a feeling that at every age, all translators worthy of the name had that basic self-consciousness or at least the conscience the duty to do justice to the original and to the language into which they were translating but if we consider translation as a creative act, and in my opinion unless it's a creative act it's, it's nothing we might as well not do it if we're going to do it mechanically. I have a feeling that at every age from any language into any other language uh, people Uh, well-meaning people or sloppy people have done uh, some terrible translations and they have also done what I would consider masterpieces of translations. I don't think there's any special approach. I don't think there's any special consciousness. It's all a matter of that inspiration of the translation. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's like composing a poem. It's like uh, creating a new work, work of art. Uh, unless we go about translation that way, I I, I don't think there's any solution. I'll I'll read to you a short poem that was translated by a Scotsman by the name of E.J.W. Gibb, who did a magnificent uh, historical survey of the entire panorama of uh, Ottoman-Turkish classical poetry, six volumes, great work of scholarship, and he translated hundreds of poems, he was doing this in the last decade of the past century, of, of, the, of the 19th century, and in my opinion, although he did a great service which has not been surpassed by anybody else in the past 100 years since he was doing this work, his translations were so dreadful, for for its time, uh, for what he was doing, for, for a man who was translating into his own language, that one of the reasons why Turkish poetry has been ignored in the West, is that he, he butchered those poems. I'll, I'll read to you one of his best translations. <laughs> Goddess, when I sight thy figure, wonder makes me dumb to be. He who sees my plight and fashion for a figure holdeth me. Not of love to me thou showest, not of ruth till now at length. Passion for thy locks doth tread me like the shadow on the lea. Thou a princess, I a beggar, may not woo thee, what can I? Yearning dazeth me with fancies vain, I never can hope to see. Shoot not forth thy glances dart, it smites my vitals, spills my blood. Cast not loose thy knotted tresses, for they work my tormentry. Destiny long since hath vowed me to the love of darlings fair, Every moon bright one doth make me thrall of down and mole to be <laughs> <laughs> this was done uh, just about a hundred years ago in the in the last decade of uh, the nineteenth century
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> stairway um, holding a candelabra in a long black gown, and she would seat herself at her play L harpsichord, put the candelabra down on the instrument, um, raise her hands above the keyboard, close her eyes, and this is what got to the RCA engineers, and say slowly, yes Bach, no Bach, absolutely Bach. No question about it, Bob. <laughs> and um, as I say, arrogant isn't sound, I think. There there comes a time in all of our work when we're listening for that other voice and uh, trying to gain his or her approval in some, um, not way, not quite such a spooky way, but in something of the same line. Maybe you don't have this experience, but you can have no, it.
2: Every night I have nightmares that uh, when I'm burning in Muslim hell, where I'll be burning... <laughs> Uh, hundreds of Turkish poets and (laughs) Shakespeare will be saying burn, burn, burn
0: (laughs) burn baby (laughs) bird Let me give you a negative object lesson before I turn to my learned Thebans for the positive replies. Um, someone knocked on my door in the last five years and said, I've just found the way of translating Homer. I said, Oh, won't you come in, please? Uh, and he came in and sat down. And uh, he, wa- he was an Irishman from uh, Trinity College, um, Dublin. And he said, You know, um, Homer is an archaizing kind of poet. Well, what I'm doing is translating Homer into Mallory back into 15th century English, that is. And, um, and this, was, this was the ticket. If you can't modernize, if you can't make it new uh, by Jesus, make it old um, with a, you know, with a, with a um, kind of vengeance. And I said, well, may I see your, may I, may I see your Mallory? And he gave me uh, his copy of the 22nd book of, of the Iliad. It was indeed very skillfully done. It's not a strategy that I would want to follow myself, but it was very <coughs> skillfully done. Um, Does someone want to address, though, the question of the sort of balance that has to be achieved? Very difficult.
1: I gave up on a poet once. I worked for about two years translating Catullus. And one of the reasons I stopped, outside of the fact that I found that... uh, 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 the ancient mentality of um, of of Catullus was not something that I felt comfortable with. That, that there was a, a a surface connection between uh, uh, Catullus's uh, more let's call it casual poetry uh, that one related to its emotionality, but beneath the emotionality, his conception of the world was so totally pre-psychological, so alien, uh, that, that uh, I couldn't feel beneath his language. And I gave up after about two years. Um, um, uh, and I, I tried conscious archaizing, in a way, a certain kind of formality. Uh, I, I, uh, I really couldn't put Catullus into a real low-down, low-level English because when Catullus uh, gets uh, naughty or dirty, whatever you want to call it, in Latin, it's very, very self-conscious. This is a very, very... This is probably, as Kenneth Rexroth said, he was probably the richest poet who ever lived. Um, And uh, uh, so, in a way, he was very consciously slumming it with language. Uh, and uh, uh, and the contrast of (coughs) Catullus's dirty words let's say and the fact that he was the person or was in that circle that introduced alien (coughs) alien metrics into Latin Greek metrics into Latin uh uh, uh, is very interesting. They have this kind of very low language and this really carefully, carefully constructed verse. And there's no way you can really get that through into English. Uh, I think of Virgil, for example, uh, every once in a while uh, I read Virgil in Latin, and he, his, his lines are so perfect, it's breathtaking. He would not let a line he would not allow anything to be published uh, in his lifetime that was not tuned to perfection. if you had verse that perfect in English, it would be disgusting uh uh English is messier uh uh so what i was confronted in my boethius was the fact that the world doesn't need a new boethius we know what he says uh but the fact is that that boethius as a poet was a poet who improved in translation and uh i what i was trying to do was 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 uh i mean <coughs> These versions that I have made, uh, it's almost another uh, uh, image I have is seeing through layers of water and down on the bottom is that Latin. And what I do do in these poems is uh, try to, uh, at least in terms of stress um, and enjambment, patterns of enjambment, honor the original Latin. Uh, some of the poems later on that you don't have, I actually I, I did translate into the uh, patterns, the, the accentual patterns, not the uh, uh, not the tonal patterns of the original Latin verse uh, into English and the only way that I could do that was to take my words from anywhere, anywhere in English. If I did it only in contemporary English, I wouldn't have found those words. So I, I looked to other stages of English for the rhythms that I needed to honor the original Latin rhythms, is what I'm saying.
2: I think Rosette uh, Lamont's uh, question is very important, of course. My answer would be that ideally, a creative translator would try to bring into his uh, new creation, if that is the right right word for it, all of the original elements and dimensions, including substance, imagery, metaphors, uh, word plays, and musicality, euphony, everything one can imagine. And that ultimately, of course, if it can ever be achieved, is the great masterpiece of of translation, but it can be achieved uh, uh, practically never with uh, some divine exceptions, perhaps. Uh, But then the translator is confronted always with a choice of different types of betrayal. You have to compromise in some way, give up on some element in order to capture something else. In the case of highly formal poetry, as the classical poetry that I translate into English from uh, Ottoman Turkish is concerned, uh, there, there are some intractable problems. Uh, there are um, chasms that are impossible to bridge between the two languages and uh, the two traditions, so to speak, particularly from across the ages. Uh, f- for instance, uh, some of the poems I've read to you from the classical Ottoman period uh, are very heavily rhymed in a way that defies the repertoire of rhymes in English. There's no problem with self-rhyming couplets because English is is rich in that. And and usually that type of poem uh, becomes an acceptable poem in the English language. But take the most common form of Islamic uh, poetic structure, which is a ghazal, where you have anywhere from six to 16 rhymes to be sustained within a poem. If you take the longer version of that, which is a kasida, a classical ode, a long ode, you can have 100 rhymes. Now in English, there are very, very few possibilities of sustaining that rhyme structure. So what do you do? You force, you change, you distort, you add things, you delete things, simply for the sake of the rhyme. I'd rather not do that if possible. If the poem uh, is reluctant to being rendered into that sort of uh, species, wrong, uh, spurious type of translation. I'd rather not ruin the poem, leave the poem aside altogether, or free it from structure if I feel that I can give the substance of it in effective terms. That was one of the problems with the translations that Gibb made, who was atrocious, specimen I I, I just uh, read to you, he tried to rhyme exactly the same way. Besides, in the Islamic tradition, every couplet is complete within itself. There is no enjambment, there is no run-on from one line to another. Even within the uh, individual couplets, uh, every rhyme has its own integrity. It doesn't run on from one line to the other. So what do you do with that? It's best, I think, to respect the original. I firmly believe that some poems should never be translated if the languages are so disparate, if the cultures are so different, that there is no way of doing justice to the original. That is a criminal act, in my opinion, in literal terms, and I would not condone it. Uh, I translate both ways, so I have different types of problems translating into Turkish. Uh, English has, what, 600,000 words in the latest Oxford. Turkish has uh, anywhere from 40 to 60,000 words, and it's extremely poor in terms of abstract vocabulary. So, translating some ty- types of British or American poetry into Turkish is an impossible task; you simply cannot do justice to it. On the other hand, to translate modern poems from Turkish into English is a sheer delight, because you have this immensely rich vocabulary you can you can call from. Uh, and, and there, I think you can achieve great heights if, if you want to. Th- there's an advantage. But if there is an inherent impossibility, it's best to leave the originals alone. That, I think, is a sacred duty of the translator. It's a matter of conscience to leave alone what cannot be translated. There is such a thing as an untranslatable poem. The Western languages usually don't feel this because, I mean, it's not really that difficult uh, to translate. French poetry into English or Spanish poetry into Italian. They are so cognate. But when the languages are, are so different, where you cannot capture the rhythms, where you cannot do justice to the original euphony uh, of the poem, leave it alone. That would be my advice to, to anybody. Th- that's what I do. There are many poems I'll simply cherish in the original. At a poetry program, I might read that poem in the original and simply describe what it says. in prose terms, in prosaic terms. But that way, at least, you are keeping the unity and
0: integrity of the original alive. May I ask a question of Ritva? I know that you work essentially with modern work, but perhaps not exclusively. And I wonder if you find works in the Estonian or Finnish which are literally Mm -hmm. untranslatable and which you would rather not touch.
3: I I think there's an analogy with the old runic tradition, the ancient folk tradition, the Kalevala tradition. and there. You come across similar problems. You also come across a a canon uh, of translations, which you often, for the most part, you won't find in the modern modern, um, authors. And I think you really have to keep you have to keep your objective in mind. I, I mean, I usually think about a strategy. I mean, there are so many possibilities as to how you will render it, and I think. You have to really consider who your audience is and what it is you'd like to achieve yeah. and go from there. You know. uh, Fair.
0: Fair yeah. Other questions?
2: It seems we have solved all the translation <laughs> problems <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Except when
0: we begin tomorrow morning.
1: Uh. <laughs>
3: You know, uh, when s- euro altaic also includes the Turkic languages, whereas if you say simply Uralic or Finno-Ugric, then that is without the Turkic uh, languages, I'd say.
2: They overlap in many ways, but are Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's subject to judgment, of course. If, if you listen to a Bach sonata performed very beautifully, that is comparable to a uh, highly successful uh, creative act of translation, in my opinion. But if it doesn't sound good, then uh, if you have a good musical ear, if you don't enjoy it, if you find uh, flaws with the performance, uh, I think translation is like musical performance r- rather than creating the composition itself it's a matter of interpretation it's a matter of reformulation of the of the original and th- there is inventiveness in it th- there is imagination in it uh, th- th- there are even departures from the original in order to arrive at a higher level of success uh, and the translator sometimes can sen- sense that I-, I will say with uh, great shame that I've ruined many poems but I will say also that I've Uh, translated some poems which in my opinion are just as good in the language into which I translated as are the originals. In some cases, and I'll say this with the ultimate arrogance, that uh, my Turkish versions of a few of the Shakespearean sonnets are better than the originals. How's that for arrogance? (laughs) Can be done.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I must say that, that I, I, I work in the morning before I go, go to my office, and I, 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 I surged ahead uh, on these translations at the rate of two lines a day at best. Uh, um, I had uh, piles of books all around me, various versions of Boethius, uh, uh, many, many dictionaries and many glossaries, um, and uh, I was looking for words and the proper rhythms. I did not, I did not take a line of Chaucer or a line, when I did find a phrase in an earlier version, I would always change it. I never, I never used it intact. And some of, the, some of the, uh, the lines are, I wrote. I wrote in, uh, in an earlier version of the language, like uh, the, in the first poem here, um fell nas istapa nevra fast, which means in Old English, he who fell Uh, his step was never firm. He who who fell, his step was never firm. Uh, And that's my old English. And I did it for the sound. I chose the words for the sounds and the rhythms and the structure of the poem as I conceived it. Uh, As I conceived it. Uh, I chose the words, if you like, for their music. Uh, for their poetry. Uh, uh, These translations are semantically correct, Uh, but I defined English as the the totality of historical English as I had entree into it. So more often than not, uh, Chaucer or the Chaucerian poet who made a verse translation of Boethius, 10 years after Chaucer died, John Walton. They gave me entree into the level of language. And then it was me and the OED looking for the words. And uh, there was one, in that, uh, again, that, that in that first poem, the second, third line from the bottom, Pit, pit, pitiless life drags on unkindly. Its delays unkindly means unnaturally. I had the rhythm in my mind for about a week before I found the word. So it's the lost chord, if you like. Anyway. Yes, another.
0: One. Yes, please.
2: Uh, in terms of the popularity of poetry in all Islamic languages and cultures, that is a given fact. It's been so from the very beginning. It's a culture that stressed eloquence from the very beginnings, and most of the poems in those traditions of Iran, of Arab countries, of, of Turkey, of uh, the Urdu tradition, etc. Uh, they all felt that poetry was the most important art. Uh, there. Are many, many specific statements in those traditions which say, what is prose after all? We would not deign to write prose. I mean, if we want to write it, of course, we would triumph in that too. But poetry is the, is the great art. It, it's, the, it's the sacrosanct art. It's the uh, voice of the Koran, the, the holy book, etc. cetera. Uh, as far as influences are concerned, y- yes, the elite literature of the Ottoman Empire for many centuries simply aped the stanzaic forms and the prosody of of the Arab and Persian tradition. That was a massive influence, including a lot of words borrowed directly from Arabic and Persian, which uh, almost became stultifying in the tradition of classical poetry. And uh, now it's almost impossible for anyone, even for educated people, to read those poems without using the dictionary many, many times, because the majority of the words happen to be words borrowed from mainly Arabic and and, and Persian. So it's become a dead language. The classics of uh, Turkish literature are simply inaccessible because of linguistic change, because of vocabulary change to the new generations. It's like learning a new language. It's like studying. Uh, literature you had never studied before. So there's been a tremendous cultural disruption as a result of this. And there are only a handful of people who really study the classical poetry of Turkey. And there are maybe five people who uh, even so much as have the courage of uh, doing any translations into other languages. It's one of those truly impossible, gigantic tasks. Well, uh, l- l- let me give you an example. You
0: have to for
2: your own oh, yes, yeah, sure. It's done all the time. Uh, the, the, there are uh, scores of books which have the Ottoman original on one side yes. and the modern translation on the other side. Some of them won't do the translations, but they'll provide for one, say, 10 line poem, three pages of vocabulary or explanation of the terms. Because many of those terms have become completely obsolete. And, and the concepts have disappeared, too, because of cultural change as well. Some of them are religious concepts, others are uh, mystical terminology, etc. So you have to learn it as, as a new culture. But as far as trying different types of form are concerned in translation, for instance in my uh, book on the selected poems of Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, I used what I felt every conceivable kind of translation method. If the uh, possibility of providing the rhymes in English existed, then I was absolutely faithful to the form of the original poem. I rhymed it exactly the same way and and used prosodic structure as well. But if I felt that uh, I should have light rhyming, if rhythmically the poem worked better that way, then I liberated it from uh, rigid stringent form, and I did light rhyming. But if I felt, as in the case of the poem I I read here, that the the poem was so free of uh, encumbrances, or should be in translation, then I went ahead and did it in free verse. It's, in my opinion, the the substance, the spirit of the poem that matters. That is what we should not kill. We can change the body. The body can be fat or thin. The body can be amorphous. The body can be strict. That is less of a concern as far as as I'm concerned. original uh, feeling, the passion of the poem, the music of the poem, the rhythm of the poem, and the concepts and substances are far more important.
0: I'd like to thank you for coming, and I'd like to thank my colleagues for joining us, Salah Talman, Kutba Kuhn, Many thanks. And we thank you.